Do you remember the first time that you stood on the streets of Manhattan? And you stood there in between two of the magnificent edifices that are in New York. And you stood there and you turned and you looked up at the one and you looked up at the other and you just craned your neck trying to get a sense of the size and the scope of the buildings that were on either side of you. Do you remember the feeling that you had when you did that the very first time? Maybe you haven't been to Manhattan, maybe it's Philly or maybe it's Chicago, if you've been to Chicago and stood and seen those buildings there. But do you remember the, the things that it conjures up inside of you? It's, it's compelling, it's wonderful, it's amazing, it's awesome when you're looking at buildings like that. But perhaps as you looked up, you found it as well to be somewhat disorienting. Perhaps if you, like me, suffer a little bit from a fear of heights, when you look up at something like that, I actually lose my balance. I, I feel like I have to take a step backwards as if that building has started coming this way towards me. In fact, even as I try to imagine it right now, even as I describe it to you, my knees get the feeling, any of you who are a little bit afraid of heights can know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this odd, strange feeling that I can feel running down the back of my legs that says, you're not on safe ground anymore. You have to find something to hold on to. And we can get that feeling when we look at edifices like that. In our text today, here in Exodus, we find ourselves between two such edifices. On the one side, one of the buildings is the human heart. Small in size and yet grand in complexity capable of deep and wonderful and true affections of loyalty, of faithfulness, of love and delight, and yet, and yet, equally furnished with an incomprehensible capacity for conceiving of evil, for acting it out, for harboring hatred, for wallowing in fear and selfishness and pride, for a heart to sit there and insist on its own autonomy. Pharaoh's heart, in particular, is an edifice that in this passage we stand and look at. On the other side of the street is another building. It is a building that is called the sovereignty of God expressed in His providential care, in fact, His providential govern, ruling, lordship over all things, all people, all situations. The providence of God is wonderful. It's comforting. It is a doctrine when we are in distress that brings us tremendous relief. It can be expressed in words like we did this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism in that question and answer about providence. Look at it again later. You'll see it's wonderful as it describes God's care for us exercised through providence. And yet, at the same time, it's terrifying. It's mysterious. It is threatening as the sovereignty of God and His providence insists on its rulership over all things including our hearts. Moses, Aaron, the people, and we, we stand here, and on either side of us are these two enormous, imposing edifices. And we can't see the top of either building. 
from the perspective where we stand, we can't see either one. But because of the situation, Moses and Aaron, of course, and the people less so, but Moses and Aaron are forced to look squarely at the edifice of Pharaoh, to stand there and absorb his heart in all of its cruelty, in all of its ugliness expressed towards them. They have to get around Pharaoh. They have to get through Pharaoh. Basically, you have two octogenarians. And don't make the mistake of thinking that people lived a long time in those days, and therefore an 80-year-old was a 30-year-old or something like that. They were old. They were 80 years old, and they were 83-year-old, and in their hand they had two sticks. And they look up at that edifice and say, I know you're not going to believe this. I know we already told you this one time, or at least I, Moses, told this to you one time. Aaron is going to tell you this time. We've said this before, but God really, really wants you to let his people go. Pharaoh has a hard heart. He is a hard-hearted man. He's cold-hearted. He's stone cold. He's cold-blooded. He's hard as flint. He's cold as ice. And over the next few chapters, as we look at the plagues next week, that heart is going to get harder still. But when you read this passage, what is stunning what is troubling, what is awe-inspiring, what is mysterious is the unavoidable declaration that Yahweh himself is the active agent in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God has not merely in this passage foreseen that Pharaoh's heart would be hard. He has not merely permitted Pharaoh to have a hard heart. God is the active one hardening the heart. Now, we can go through the next few chapters, and you can see various language used throughout those chapters. Some where it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Some where it says that it was hardened without any ascription of who was doing the hardening. But others, like the text that is before us today, will say very specifically that God is the one who is doing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The very things that should have been the things that softened Pharaoh's heart become the means of a greater hardening taking place. Now, this is the story here, and we're going to be able to relate this to us with one easy step. God anticipates that Pharaoh is going to say, well, show me something. Okay, if this Yahweh is Yahweh, if he's in fact grand and powerful and great, well, show me. Work a miracle. Do something in front of me. Have you ever been, and I have a couple of times, actually more than a couple, in a conversation with a non-believer who says, show me your God. Why is he so hidden? Why doesn't he just do something? I would believe if he only did something that was unmistakable, that was a wonder, that was a sign that I could sit here and see. And so those very things, these are the things that should soften the heart of Pharaoh from Pharaoh's own lips, show me a sign. And God does it. 
And yet for Pharaoh, it takes the exact opposite course. God seems to use the very signs and wonders that should soften in demonstration of God's own power, and he seems to use it to add more floors to the edifice of Pharaoh. It seems that somewhere up in the sky when we can't see the top of these buildings, there must be a crane, and the more the sovereign God works and the more the wonders take place, the more this crane of God's sovereignty takes and adds another floor to the top of Pharaoh's hard heart, and so it keeps getting harder. With the result that Pharaoh, over the course of the chapters to come, is more callous, and he's increasingly irrational. And when we look at this text, the questions that come to your minds, that I trust are in your minds right now, are the same questions that would have come into the minds of people then, in the time of the New Testament, when Paul reflects on this passage. You want to know why is this happening? Why didn't God just get them out in one fell swoop? Surely he could have done it, right? We see other places in Scripture where he has done similar things. Why not just put him to sleep for a couple days? Israel goes out. A little anesthesia, a little blindness maybe for a couple of days, and Israel goes out. Surely there's an easier way than ten consecutive plagues, each one worse than the other, down to the worst at the end. How is this happening? Who is responsible for what part of what we're going to see take place? And then, of course, the big question, is it just? Is it fair? Does God have a right to do that? Can he use Pharaoh in a way that he chooses to accomplish his purposes? In Bruce Almighty... Bruce wasn't allowed to mess with free will. That was the one stipulation that he got. God, in Exodus, in Romans chapter 9, says, the will is mine. I'll turn it. How free the will actually is is a question that we might ask ourselves. But God doesn't absolve himself of authority or of responsibility as it relates to the will. Now, I just asked a series of questions, that are big questions, in mid-sermon, and that means one of two things. Either it's going to be a very long sermon, or I don't know the answers. <laughs> it is the latter of the two. Of course, as we look at something like this, you recognize, you've, you've, you've been around long enough, you've studied Scripture, you've thought about these questions long enough to say that there are complexities here that we won't be able to answer, right? No one can answer these questions. They've been wrestled with for thousands and thousands of years. I've quoted before Milton's quote, this is actually demons sitting on a hill together. Others sat on a hill retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of will, fate, and knowledge. Fixed, fate, free, will, foreknowledge, absolute. And found no end in wandering mazes lost. 
we too, in approaching something like this, must acknowledge that I can't see the top of the buildings, that it's above my sight line to be able to say exactly what is taking place in this picture. But because we can't understand everything about it doesn't mean that we can't understand some things about it. What is happening here? What is God doing? Actually, Exodus 7, and together with several other passages and verses that we'll turn to in the plague sequence to follow, actually it provides a pretty good theological explanation for what God is doing and why He is doing it. So let me just tick them off very quickly for us. First, God is judging. Make no mistakes, in verse 4, what he says is, he's not going to listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Pharaoh is an evil man. He is an evil king, and he is in charge of an evil system that has filtered evil and wickedness throughout that system, and the righteous God of the universe is judging him for it. And we know down deep inside of us that that is right. It is right and good and true when God executes his judgments. But more than that, it's exactly what God said he would do in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham, to Abram, excuse me. What he says is, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they'll come out. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. This is judgment on the wickedness of the Egyptians who have oppressed and enslaved and killed Israelites and Israelite children. Secondly, God is exposing the folly of the self-exalting heart. That is what hearts want to do. They want to say, I'm great. Look at me. I'm great. And God, in this whole sequence, is exposing the folly of it. I'll come back to this in just a moment. Third, God is demonstrating His power. God is saying to us, to them, you think Pharaoh is strong. You think the problems that you have are insurmountable. They're unconquerable. The problems that you have and the people who are difficult in your life are immovable. Let me show you two things. Number one, they're stronger than you realize. See, God doesn't let him just see Pharaoh as Pharaoh in the first place. He makes Pharaoh worse. Your problems are more difficult than you realize. They're not lighter than you realize. And number two, I, God, am stronger than you can possibly imagine. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me over to Exodus chapter 9. In the midst of one of the plagues, there is a reflection that helps us here. Exodus chapter 9 Verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That is the purpose of adding floors to your edifice. When I do that, 
I'm showing that I'm more powerful than you. Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You're exalting yourself. You're in a game of self-exaltation before me, before whose edifice you ought be cowering. Fourth, God is piercing the depths of the human heart with one crystal clear, short message. Here's what God is saying. Know that I am the Lord. Know it. Egyptians know it. Verse 5 of chapter 7. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them out, the people of Israel, bring out the people of Israel from among them. Egyptians, watch this and know that I am the Lord. Israelites, chapter 6, verse 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with, a great, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Whether you are Egyptian or whether you're Israelite or whether you're the son of an Israelite or the grandson of an Israelite or the granddaughter of an Israelite, chapter 10, verse 2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Why is God doing this? There is one message it's pretty easy, it's pretty clear, it's pretty straightforward. I'm the Lord. And you're not. And Pharaoh's not. I am the Lord. And that knowledge of the Lord will result in either judgment or repentance. You're either going to know it and repent and bow before him, or you will be judged for continuing to self-exalt. As you listen to this, please do not forget what I said at the very, very beginning of our series on Exodus. This story, as much as we are tempted to see it in this way, is not a story of the good guys, aka the Israelites, and the bad guys, aka the Egyptians slash Pharaoh. It's not a good guy, bad guy story. God has a plan for Egypt. I read it for us from Isaiah. You can read it from other places. God has a plan for Egypt. The plan that he has for Egypt is good. It is just not yet ripe. The plan that he has for his people, the Israelites, is now ripe. It has taken 400 years of oppression to ripen. But now it's ready. 
Now it is ready to be plucked out, to be taken out of the Garden of Goshen and taken back to Israel. Not good guys and bad guys. People called by God in His time so that they can know the Lord. So is it just or is it not? What do you think? Fair or not? What do we say to this? God is taking a human heart, a real person, and a situation, and He is, I've used this word earlier, amplifying it, turning it up. In fact, He's turning it up so loud that we can barely hear. He's going to turn it up so loud that distortion will, pick, will get into this whole image. And neither Pharaoh nor others will be able to understand exactly what God is doing. He's amplifying. He's intensifying. He's magnifying, however you prefer to say it. To tell us a story that continues to be told 3,500 years after it took place. I was driving in my car Friday afternoon. I was listening to a station. It was not a Christian station. It was some rock station. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to this regular rock station and the story of the Exodus is being told in the song. And I, somebody could tell me the name of the group who was doing it. I actually couldn't figure out the name of the group, but I was just kind of like, wow, what's going on here? The story continues to get told because God put an amplifier on it. But is it fair or is it right? Calvin, in an effort to get at this question, says this, Hardness of heart is the sin of man, but the hardening of the heart is the judgment of God. Let me repeat that. Hardness of heart is the sin of man, but the hardening of the heart is the judgment of God. See, we can't, ask, we can't answer this question without zooming out a bit. This passage, Exodus, and the story of Exodus tells us a lot. It doesn't tell us quite enough to be able to answer this question in its fullness. So we've got to look at the whole counsel of Scripture. And then, frankly, we've got to look at our own hearts to be able to answer this question of whether or not it is actually fair. Exodus is a representational story. Pharaoh is a person who is uniquely and unequivocally hard-hearted. We're not like Pharaoh exactly, perhaps in our opportunity for sin or in the way that we express it. But he is, in fact, a blown-up picture of every human heart. That is the witness of Scripture. He is a comic book villain. Now, there's nothing comical about Pharaoh but a comic book villain in the way that he is described for us, in the way that he is pictured for us, in the heinousness and the hugeness of villains in a comic book. The scriptural message is this, that because of sin, every human heart is in fact cold and hard and naturally characterized by the rigidity of death. Our hearts are incapable of self-correction, self-resuscitation, or self-regeneration. God shows no partiality. 
That was the last line of the New Testament reading. Why? Because Paul is laboring to remind his Israelite brothers and sisters, do not presume upon the grace of God. He shows no partiality. It doesn't make a difference whether you are, in Paul's language, Jew or Greek, or whether you are Egyptian, you and I are conceived in and have only a hard and impenitent heart in and of ourselves. We are spiritual zombies. We are spiritual walking dead people. We move much better than movie zombies, admittedly. But spiritually, we don't. Spiritually, we look like a movie zombie. And we cannot fix the problem. The heart of darkness reigns and there is no escape because the unholy trinity has us. Satan, the father of lies, and his henchmen, sin, have spawned death. They've given birth to death, and that unholy trinity holds us in bondage. Pharaoh's heart is our heart. Pharaoh's position as the king ruling over an enslaved nation is the position that Satan holds. He holds people in bondage, and he uses sin and death to secure it. There can be no deliverance for the people of God, no deliverance for the Israelites, none for you, none for me, none for the Egyptians, without a perception of the magnitude of the hardness that exists unless you recognize it, unless you realize it, the utter helplessness that we have before the prince of darkness. For 400 years, God has been teaching the Israelites that they cannot save themselves, that they cannot get out of this land by themselves. And now the story has reached its denouement. But we're still pretty early in Exodus. We're only on Exodus chapter 7. There are 33 more chapters to go. And in the Bible, it, you know, this, this is where we are in the Bible, and this is what we've got left. To have reached a denouement, we realize, is anticipating something that is to come. We need a king who rules over the heart. We need a priest who will take the judgment on our behalf. We need a prophet who will tell us the truth about a hard heart that we have. And we need a king who can defeat sin and death and Satan. And we need a shepherd who will lead us out. And we don't need Moses. We need Jesus. That's what the Exodus story is all about. We need a deliverer. We need Jesus. God 
calls each and every one of us to reach our own personal denouement with him. This was the Israelites' denouement. Christ on the cross is a denouement. But each one of us must reach that point as well, the point where we acknowledge the desperateness of our situation, the fact that we cannot save ourselves, and then we cry out for mercy in Jesus Christ, and we hide in Him. If Jesus Christ, if He is not sovereign over the heart, if it's not His, there's no hope. There's no hope for our salvation. We are damned and doomed. Here's a question for you to ponder. What amplification must God do in your life to bring you to your knees before the edifice of the cross? What's he got to do? What does it take to break you down? May God break us down. May he do it. Because there's life then to give to us. But it's on the other side of that. And may he protect us even having restored our hearts, may he protect us from an increasing callousness or insidious, slippery callousness that can happen to our hearts. So that we, even more clearly than our Israelite brothers and sisters, than Egyptians who would see these things and flee with them, but we'll come to that, might see Jesus more clearly and love him more dearly. Let's pray.